Well, good morning. Good morning. Come on, man. I've been here for a while. Y'all wake up a little. Hey, listen, so I am so thankful to be with you again this morning. And we are going to be kind of wrapping up the last two weeks of our All In series today. And um, I'm excited to be able to spend some time with you this morning as we look into God's Word together. Who's been on a roller coaster? Anyone? Anyone? Don't be ashamed of that. It's cool. Carowinds? Anyone? Anybody might have been to Kings Island? It's like my old stomping grounds right there, Kings Island, back in the Midwest. If you've ever been to a, a, a theme park of some kind, the first thing you might notice when you pull into the parking lot and find a parking spot is what? When you look inside, you see roller coasters, right? You, have, you can't miss them. They're very tall things. And you look and you see the, the death machines inside of the theme park, and they're just everywhere, just like super high in the air. And um, I remember when I was in eighth grade, it was the first time I'd ever gone to a theme park. Up at that point in time, I had done a very good job through my eighth grade year of not going to one of these places because I was terrified of them. And so, sure enough, for school, we had a school trip to Dallas, Texas, to Six Flags Over Dallas. And I thought in my head, I've made it to eighth grade, but this is going to be the end. This is where it all comes to an end. So I remember being on the, the bus, you know, going to Dallas, all my eighth grade friends so excited about riding these roller coasters. And in, if I was truthful, I was terrified. I'm talking like sick to my stomach, terrified. Probably going to show it. I'm in eighth grade. So I was like, yeah, I can't wait to ride these things. And I'm like trying not to cry as we're, as we're driving to Dallas. And sure enough, we pull into the parking lot and we pull into our parking spot. And you look into the theme park and you're like, people are, you, you know how nuts people are that we do this kind of thing? I mean, it's like, like hundreds of feet in the air. And then we get in these things and we ride them. We're crazy. And so sure enough, we get out of the bus, we go into this theme park, and I'm walking around, and I'm just trying to buy as much stuff. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm going to find something to eat, I'm thirsty. I, I'm trying to like everything I can not to get on these rides. But of course, eventually, I've got to get in line to get on one of these rides. Maybe you've done this before, and you wait like three weeks to get on a ride that lasts 45 seconds, also crazy. And, you're, and you do it while you're standing on the surface of the sun. It's like so hot. You go, to, you go to Carowinds in the summer, it's like, this is crazy. Why do we do People are sweating, but everybody's having a great time. I was terrified. So for three weeks, I'm waiting in this line to get to this roller coaster. I finally get to the roller coaster, and I think it was Top Gun, if y'all are familiar with Top Gun. And when you finally get into where you're going to get into the death trap with the other three people that are going to die with you, and you come up, and they, they strap you in a shopping cart with like a seatbelt. And like Top Gun, you're, you're sitting on a bicycle seat and your feet are dangling. I mean, it's just crazy that people do this for fun. And so sure enough, you're there all day long and you're able to ride like four rides and you're there for 24 hours. So I get strapped into this thing like everybody else. And if you've been on a roller coaster before, you know exactly what happens next because you start going onto the ride and there's always the first what? Hill that you got to go up, right? And as soon as you begin to go up the hill and you hear the click, 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 in your head, you begin to think, I've made a terrible mistake. I should not be on this ride. I need to get off this ride. But by that point in time, if you're clicking up the first hill, guess what? Too late. You are committed. You knew it when you pulled in the parking lot and you saw these things. You knew what these things were about. And sure enough, you stood in line and you got on. The, and now here you are clicking up the first hill. And then sure enough, you start flying through for 45 seconds. Um, you know, death is staring you in the face and you finally make it through. And you do it again. I don't know why. Now, this is, this is really kind of the, when you get on a roller coaster like this, you know for sure when you're, when you're sitting there strapped in, clicking up the hill, 
I'm committed now. I know what it means to be all in because I can't get off this thing. I'm, this is happening, and I'm a part of it. You know, during this all-in series, we've been looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, someone who's learning from Jesus how to live our entire lives under the rule and reign of God. What's it like to live under the rule and reign of God? And as a disciple, there is some point in our life, hopefully, where we say, you know what, Jesus, I am all in. I've been toying with this for a while, or I've been running from you for a long time, or I've never really even knew about this thing, but, but because I know about what it's like to follow you, Jesus, I am all, I'm committed to this. I'm committed to this. I don't know about you, but in my experience as a disciple of Jesus, this ride has been a great ride. There's been some ups and downs, there's been some tough stuff, but this ride with Jesus, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would be people who would know the excitement and the anticipation and the commitment of doing life with Jesus, being all in and committed to him. The first week we looked at what it means to be a disciple and we found out that being a disciple, it's about who we are. It's about our identity. And we begin to recognize the identity of Jesus the way Peter did. When we see Jesus for who he really is as our savior and as our Lord, it changes our identity. We become new people because we see who Jesus truly is in our life. Being a disciple, it's about who we are. It's about our identity in Christ. The second week we learned it's also about how we live. It's about disciplines within our life. Sometimes it's a bad word. It's not a bad word at all. Disciplines within our life where we spend time in God's word, finding out about who he is, spending time reading it and learning from it, spending time in prayer with God, hearing from him and speaking with him giving generously, living our life the way God would want us to live through the disciplines of our life because we believe that being a disciple, it's about who we are, but it's also about how we actually live our life, the things we choose to do and the things we choose not to do. And last week, y'all had Nick Cunningham in here, right? He's pretty good, right? He's good. And, And last week, he told us this, that being a disciple, it's also about who we are with. We are better together. We're better together. And as a disciple of Jesus, we were not meant to live this life with Jesus by ourselves. We were meant to do with other people. And Nick has done a phenomenal job within our church in creating opportunities for us to get into community with one another, where people could pour into our lives if we allow them to, and we in turn could pour into the lives of other people. Maybe students, that would be a good idea if you'd like. And we do life together because we believe we're better together. Being a disciple is about who we are, it's about how we live, and it's about who we are with. And today we're going to talk about being a disciple is also about what we do. It's also about what we do. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I thank you, God, that you are at work in our lives even today. Maybe even we've not recognized it, God, but you are working. And so today, God, would you open our hearts and minds to hear from you? Would you open up your word to us that it might transform us? Help us today, God, to choose to be salt and light to the world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You know, the, the beginning of us going all in for Christ began with God going all in for us. Do you realize that? I mean, Scripture tells us that we were dead in sin, that while we were still sinful people, God himself gave of himself by sending him his son as a sacrifice to the earth. So God was the first one to go all in. I think sometimes we feel like we're, pay, we're paying God a favor by becoming a disciple. Truth is, he did the favor for us. He loved us first, and he loved us better. So we go all in because God first gave all for us. He went all in for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says it this way. 
For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a what? Gift. This is a gift from God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know what Ephesians says? God gave all for us. He went all in for us because he views us as his handiwork. His handiwork. Just two weeks ago, my son came into the living room with this in his hand. He said, Mom, Dad, I wrote a song. I'm a professional songwriter. I'm like, good, then go make some money. And so he kind of cleared his throat and he began to read his song to us. He said, I love Mom and Dad and my baby because I love my family. The end. Now, you may look at this and say, first, it doesn't rhyme. Not a song, okay? Secondly, the words all run together. You can't sound legible. He's five years old, you know? When I saw this and when I had him read this to me and he came in and sang his song to us, this is a masterpiece. This is the kind of thing you put on your refrigerator right away, you know? And when people come and you're like, look at the, look at the prof- professional songwriter, wrote a song. You could look at it if you'd like. And when he turns 25, this is the thing that I bring up again and embarrass him. It's that kind of good. This, I don't care what you think of this. To me, this is, this is handiwork. This is a, an art piece. I told Eli, I said, Eli, can I, can I tell people about this? He's like, yeah, Dad, you can tell people. You can tell people, but make sure they know I wrote it. I'm like, <laughs> I will make sure they know you wrote it. It's a masterpiece. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are God's masterpiece. You know, the Greek word for this word masterpiece is the Greek word poema. Everyone say poema. This means work of a creator or a masterpiece or workmanship, a work of art. Here's the thing. Many of us in the room today, we don't feel that way about ourselves. For many of us in the room today, we, we can't imagine God feeling that way about us because we feel so poorly about ourselves because of our past, because of mistakes we've made, or potentially it's the person next to you or someone in your community or someone you work with who tells you about it all the time. But guess what? No matter how anyone feels about you, no matter how you feel about yourself, God says that you are his handiwork. You're his work of art. He, he made you. He created you. You're the work of a creator. You are intentional. You are beautiful. And the cool thing is in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that we were created by God on purpose. It was not a mistake. You're God's handiwork. You were created by God on purpose. And the reason I know this is because there are two different words, work, that are talked about here. Verse 9 talks about works, but verse 10 talks about works as well. Verse 9 says this, For it is by grace that you've been saved, verse 9, not by works. It's a gift from God, remember? So you have not been saved. You have not been redeemed. You have not been called to God because of anything that you've done, praise God. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good works to earn his love. So we don't do good things. We don't do good deeds as a disciple so that we could somehow improve our status before God so that he might have favor on us. You already have God's favor. You're already loved by him. You can't improve your position because Christ Jesus gave us his position by his sacrifice on the cross. So it's not by our works, it's not by our good deeds that we gain position before God, but in verse 10 it talks about works as well. It says this, 
For we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. So we don't do good works in a way to gain a certain position before God. We do good works because of our position before God, as a response to our position before God. That's why we do good works. You know, I see all the time different disasters that happen around our country. You know who some of the first people that show up are? Christians. Christians. Not for a paycheck. You know why they do it? Not to earn a status before God, but because of the status they've been given by God. That's why they show up. There are people in our church who love people so well, who I see serve all the time. In fact, there's a gentleman in our church who needs his yard mode. He was in the hospital just a, just a couple days ago. There's a man from our church. All I knew I had to do was make one phone call and he'd be taken care of. And sure enough, within a day, that person had gone, mowed that yard. So when that man came home, his yard was all mowed. Seems like a, such a small thing, but that good deed is not so that he gains the status before God. It's because of his status before God. Good works. Here's what I want you to know. You have been created by God. You've been, cre- been created by God on purpose because he has, he has good deeds that he wants you to do. I hope you feel the weight of that. That as Christians, as disciples, we don't just live this life alongside of Jesus for no reason. We do it because he has good works for us to do. He has good things for us to do. So you're God's masterpiece, not to improve your position before God, but as a result of your position before God. We serve people. We love people. We live generously. We give mercy and kindness. We, we sacrifice because God first created us to do these good things. So as a disciple, it's about what you do. As a disciple, it's about what you do. Not to become one, but because you are one. We live good works. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 5, the, verse, the, the passage that we read earlier, In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to a group of people once again, a large group of people. And some of the people that are there are his disciples, these men who are now following him and learning from him how to live their life under the reign and rule of God. Now, it's extremely important to understand who these men are to understand this conversation that Jesus has with them. You have to understand these men are not the cream of the crop. These men are not the valedictorians. These men were not voted most likely to succeed. These men that Jesus chooses to come alongside of him and learn from him, these men are all the ones that didn't make the cut. These are all the ones who were the dropouts. These are the ones who didn't have status within the community. Here's what's so amazing to me. What Jesus does with these disciples, these men that he's speaking to, he takes ordinary people and he does extraordinary things. That should be hopeful for you today. Jesus takes ordinary people and he does extraordinary things. What were most of these men doing when Jesus found them and invited them to follow him? Fishing, right? It's not a knock on fishermen. I mean, go ahead and fish. I love it too. But what these men were doing is they were fishing, which means they had gone back to the trade of their parents. They had gone back to doing what their parents had always done. The hope of every young Jewish boy was that somehow you would find a rabbi who would teach you and you could learn underneath. You would learn from these rabbis and eventually if you did things right, if you stayed in the rigid Jewish educational system long enough, then eventually you could too become a rabbi, someone who would teach God's word. It was very rigid, very stringent. Most people did not make it through. There was all kinds of things you had to memorize, like the whole Old Testament. You had to learn all these things, memorize them, be able to quote scripture, be able to answer questions well when the rabbi would ask. And most people did not make it through. 
So the fact that these men, these young disciples that Jesus asked to follow him are going back to fishing means what? They didn't make it. They got cut. Have you ever wondered when Jesus comes along the lakeside and says to these men, come and follow me, they drop everything and they follow Jesus. Have you ever wondered why? That seems odd to me. And their parents are like, yes, go follow Jesus. It seems odd to me. Here's why. Jesus was what? A rabbi. They didn't make the cut, but with this rabbi, they did. With this rabbi, he chooses ordinary people to come and follow him. And then he uses them to do extraordinary things. The fact that these fishermen were fishing when Jesus found them meant that they did not make the cut. So it's a bit shocking that Jesus says the things that he says to them here in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. We're going to look at the first verse first. 13. He says to these men, and I understand who these guys are. He says to them, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown down and trampled underfoot. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus calls the disciples the salt of the earth. Now, for most of us, that may, may not make a whole lot of sense because as far as we know, we just use salt to cook dinner or cook lunch. Within the ancient Near East culture, salt was an incredibly valuable commodity. It meant a ton. And there were two main uses for this, and surely Jesus was thinking about this when he said this to these men. The first thing that salt would do is it would preserve food. You didn't have refrigerators. You didn't have zebra cakes and nice little sealed packages. So if you wanted to eat something, you had to make sure that it did not decay and go bad. And so what they would do is they would rub salt all over it to pull all the moisture out, and it would preserve the food they would take with them, and they would eat. And so Jesus says to these men, you are the salt of the earth. He has to be thinking in these kinds of terms. So Jesus is saying to these men, he's comparing them to the seasoning, and he's saying, listen, you, you are the very ones who will preserve this earth. You're the very ones who will preserve things the way they should be, the way I want them to be. So we have to understand that as disciples, this is one of our primary roles as being salt of the earth people. Preservation. I probably wouldn't have to argue with you too much to have you come to the same conclusion that I've come to, and that is that our culture is in decay. Our culture is in decay. Even from the time when I was a young boy, I've seen things change so much. Just a couple days ago, I was speaking at CIU, uh, teaching a class for David Olshine, and I was speaking to these students who were in the room, and um, I was mentioning to them how much things have changed over the years. And so I asked them, how old were y'all when 9-11 happened? And almost all of them said four years old. I was like, wow, I wasn't even four years old. I was in college when that took place. And I remember before 9-11 took place, I used to be able to ride my bike anywhere I wanted to in town. I'd come home from school, get on my bike, I'd ride all across town to see friends and do all kinds of things. There was, no, there was no fear in my life. I didn't know what the word terrorist meant. I had no idea. And when 9-11 happened, it changed everything for us. And for these kids nowadays, it's a different world they grow up in. Our culture is in decay. Think about families. When I was growing up, I didn't know a whole lot of families who had a broken home. I didn't know a whole lot that were like that. If you were to ask our students within our student ministry, the students they go to school with, there are so many families who are broken. Our culture is in decay. Maybe you've gone to see a movie lately or listen to music lately. I'm not wagging my, my finger at the entertainment industry necessarily, but there are a lot of things that comes out of the entertainment interest, industry that is decay, that's rotten at its core. It's important for us to realize this and recognize this, all of the ways that our world is in decay. 
We were promised in Scripture that it would happen. We shouldn't be surprised that it is. So here's what we, our job as Christians, is not to put our head in the sand and be upset and whine and cry, but instead, our job is to preserve. Our job is to find all the things that look like the kingdom of God and make sure those things are preserved, that look like the way God wants them to be, and we preserve those things so that we live generously, so that we serve people, so that we love people well. We are preservation agents. Most people nowadays are more concerned with their political affiliation than their spiritual affiliation. That should not be so. We should be people who are not a part of the decay that's happening in the world, but instead we are people who are part of the preservation within the world that God wants us to do. The illustration even goes further than that. They'd also use salt to flavor food, much the way we do now. The cool thing about salt is it doesn't just give a flavor to the food, it actually enhances the flavor of whatever you're cooking as well. Would you agree that we live in a world that is amazing? We, we live in an amazing world. In the midst of all the things that you see on the news, in the midst of all the junk that's going on, in the midst of all the decay, we live in an amazing, amazing world. Think about the most beautiful places you've ever been to, to visit. Think about this. You can get on an airplane. Think about the technologies that we live with right now. You can get on an airplane on the East Coast within six hours, fly, and land on the other side of our country. That is a, you fly in an airplane in the sky. That is crazy. Think about the crazy, awesome world that we actually live in. What we should do as Christians is the same thing that I believe Jesus is challenging these disciples to do, is to reveal things that exist, to reveal where God is at work, to reveal what God is doing, to enhance the world around us. Just a few days ago, I went to Chick-fil-A to meet up with two of our college students from our youth program, two amazing, amazing guys, Ben Freiberger and Trey Mitchell. Trey Mitchell's a walk-on football player at Carolina. We're meeting once a week right now for some intentional discipleship to talk about what it means to live life with Jesus. Every time I leave Chick-fil-A, I am so filled by spending time with them. Just hearing them talk about what's going on in their life, to hear their excitement for Christ, to hear their struggles. I leave every time feeling like my life is more fulfilled by spending time with them. What if every person that came in contact with us, when they left us, they could say the same thing? That we brought flavor to the world around us. And to be honest, unfortunately, that is not the thing that is said about us Christians too often. That needs to change. And Jesus says to these disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are preservation agents, and you're also ones who bring flavor out of the world around us to help us really live life to the full. Jesus goes on to say this, if we can go back to that Matthew passage, verse 14. Jesus says, neither do, you are the light of the world, verse 14. Jesus says, you are also the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your what? Good deeds, your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus says to these ordinary men, you are the salt of the earth. And he turns to him again and says, listen, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. Now, we probably don't understand this the way they would have understood it in their context because to us, if we go into a dark room, what do we do? Flip a light switch, and hopefully it turns on, unless you're like me and every bulb in the house is burned out. But it should turn on. It should turn on. With an ancient Near East culture, this is not how they lived. Obviously, there's no electricity, if you didn't know that. 
They lived their entire life with oil lamps or candles or some kind of fire. So when it got dark, it got dark. And so for Jesus to say to these men, you are the light of the world, they would have understood this. They would have, would have understood the importance of this. Jesus says, you are, you are a city on a hill. You're a city on a hill. Now, cities were built on hills for a very specific reason. One, for protection from any kind of invaders, but also as travelers would come through at night, be very, very dark outside, they would be able to look and see this city far off that would have oil lamps and candles within it and it would glow on this hillside. They knew exactly where they could go to find shelter. They knew exactly where they could go to get where they were going to. So Jesus says to these men, you are not just salt of the earth, but you are also the light of the world. You know what light does? When, when you walk into a dark room and you turn a light on, it's not like things all of a sudden appear in there that weren't there before. What light does is it reveals things that are already there. It reveals things that already exist. I believe that God is at work within our life. He's at work within our world. And when we live as light of the world, we actually reveal the things that God is at work doing to the world around us. You know, within a culture and a world that seems increasingly dark, if you watch the news, it seems like there's more hate, more disappointment, more distrust, more anger. We are called to be light. Now, we're not the source of the light. We reflect the light of Jesus Christ into the lives of those around us. What if people could say that about us? That when they're with us, they feel like they get a sense of what God is doing within the world as light of the world. So these men are compared to light and to salt. And Jesus essentially is saying to them, listen, you are the difference makers within the world. I'm going to take you ordinary men and do extraordinary things. You should stand out. You should look different. That's what it should be like. On my finger, I have a ring. Seven years ago, I got married to my wife, Jenna. And we gave rings to one another within our ceremony. When we left that ceremony, it said to the rest of the world, sorry, ladies, I'm taken. It said to every other man in the rest of the world, I'm sorry, she's taken. This caused us to look different from every other person within the world. We said to each other, we are committed to one another. We're all in for this relationship. I'm hers and she's mine. That's what this marriage should look like. That's what all of our marriages should look like. In fact, the Bible is pretty clear that marriages should be the clearest depiction of what the gospel looks like. To be connected and united and committed to Jesus Christ. We are to look different. You are the salt of the earth. As a disciple, you are the light of the world. The Bible says you don't light a candle and hide it under a bull. You let it shine to everyone else in the room. We should look different for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. In fact, it says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. The things that God has had planned for you to do from the very beginning, let them see your good deeds that they might do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. We don't do good things as disciples for our own glory. We do it for God's glory. We do it for him first and foremost, not for us. You know what the word glory means in scripture? It means weight. It means significance. What that means is when we do good works, when we love people well, when we live generously, when we serve people, when we do the things that God has planned for us to do from the very beginning, what that means is he receives weight. He receives significance. He becomes famous. That's the goal. And so if we're gonna live as disciples, who are learning from Jesus how to live our entire life under the reign and rule of God, I believe there are two things that we have to begin to do. 
First and foremost, we have to recognize our influence. We must recognize our influence. You may not feel like it today. You may not feel like it at Moe's after this. You may not feel like it in your school or at your workplace, but you have influence as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And even if you don't feel like it, it's true. In doing 11 years of student ministry, believe me, and having kids now, I feel like I have no influence almost all of the time. But I can tell you now, I'm having conversations with students who years later, they listened, they saw, and now they've turned and glorified their Father in heaven. There may be people you have conversations with and things that you do that you never get thanked for. No big deal, it's not for you. It's for God. You are influential. In fact, the word influence means a capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something else. As disciples, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, we have influence. Your marriage could be an influencer to another marriage that you know to give them hope. There may be someone you know in your life who doesn't have hope right now. You can be an influence for them to change their perspective on the world. We can be an influence with the broken areas of our society for true justice for all people. They may, every person might come to find the full life that Christ offers us. You have influence. Recognize it. And secondly, that every single one of us might begin to live with intention within our lives. Live with intention. In Matthew chapter 5, when it says that you are a city placed on a hill, these cities are placed intentionally for a reason. You have been placed in whatever place you find yourself for a reason. So that job that on Monday morning, you're like, oh, what am I doing here? You've been placed there for a reason. Live with intention today. And the family that you find yourself in, sometimes it's difficult. You've been placed there for a reason. Live with intention. The school that you go to, at the DMV, at the grocery store, at church, in your community, you have been placed there for a reason by God, for good works that he wants you to do. Live with intention. I want to show you a disciple from our church named Chris Hutniak. A wonderful, wonderful man. I want you to hear a little story from him and the ways that he is finding that he is seeing he has influence and how he's living with intention. Check out this video. My name is uh, Chris Hutniak. Uh, my wife, uh, Melissa, and our kids have been a member here for a little over six years, I believe. And um, we love it here. We feel like it's an extended family of our own. My wife and I, we were on our way home with our son from a soccer game in uh, Sand Hills. As we were on the way home, a, uh, there was an accident in front of us. And we pulled over right away and uh, walked up to the vehicle and uh, found the lady in the driver's side was really concerned her, her husband wasn't there. So I started searching around and I found him on the, on the hillside and I stayed with him and uh, saw him pass in front of me. And it was really emotional, obviously. And uh, the first responders came and they, they did everything they could, and, uh, but it was, it was too late. I kind of knew at that moment, I was like, well, seeing that connection with the officers and the, the EMS and all those uh, people trying to help this man and, and the look on their face and things of that nature, you know, I, I knew I needed to do something. Um, I've taken on this role of riding along with officers because I feel it's important to uh, try to bridge the gap uh, between uh, their experiences and what they may feel or think and, and, and so on and so forth. And, they see a lot of things that you know people 
don't see and, and there's a lot of stuff that, that happens that isn't reported and uh, and also you know just being straightforward with them you know and, and I may not have the answers that they need or, or whatnot but but sometimes just listening to them speaks volumes you know, a lot of times they may ask a certain question or whatnot and, uh, and I'm not a pastor you know but uh, we all have the Bible and access to it and, uh, and I point them to that you know this is this is what God's telling us this is you know maybe why this happened or, or that happened or you know just try to give them some insight and, and like I said you know before just to give them a little bit of light in the, in the dark place um, as a business owner I have an open door policy with all my employees they can call 24 7 um, you know and, and, and sometimes it uh, you know it's a it's work related but sometimes it, it's not you know there's some very personal things that are happening with them you know uh, that, uh, some that were order on the, on the line of suicide others you know with uh, just wanting to look like to get a divorce and others with financial issues and, and things of that nature but just trying to to talk to them and, 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 and help give them some guidance you know and, and, and let them know that things will be okay and, uh, and again pointing them back to the Bible you know these are not my truths God's truths and, uh, and just trying to show them that I mean whether it's uh, you know with my employees or with the officers it gives me the opportunity to you know, humble myself to them be straightforward and just be the, the salt and the light you know and, and just show them you know that there's love out there and, and try to help them in any way I can and what I hope to accomplish is I want people to uh, see Christ in me and uh, you know through my actions and through what I do and, and for them to see that and know that it's okay to step outside of, of your comfort zone and know that, you know, one of the biggest things that uh, for me is, um, and the things that I say is, if he leads you to it, he'll lead you through it. You know, and I think that's very important for people to remember that, you know, God gives us so many things and we're not alone. He's, he's with us, whether you're riding in a squad car or you're, you're helping, you know, an employee out or a neighbor or a friend in a difficult time. I mean, God put us all on that same road and that path come together to try to help and for me when I stand before God you know my, my biggest thing is I want to hear uh, well done good and faithful servant you know Chris is one of many disciples that we have within our church who recognizes the kind of influence that he has and so he's volunteering his time to ride alongside of officers to just be a be salt and light to them and he's also recognizing the employees that he employs through his business are an opportunity for him to live with intention and to really love them well in the midst of things that they're going on within their life. That's what a disciple looks like, someone who's living their life under the reign and rule of God as salt and light within the world. You know, our job is to help others come in contact with the kingdom of God by coming in contact with us. The whole goal that Jesus wants for us to have within our life is as we live our life, as we go about our way, as we come in contact with people, that when they leave their time with us, they would feel like they've come in contact with the kingdom of God. They've experienced God, God's work here on earth by the way that we live. I heard a, an interview just the other day when I was driving in my car and it was an interview with the Sherpa, which is a Himalayan native and they're well known for their mountaineering skills. And so often they take groups of people to the top of Mount Everest and they lead the way and they make sure everyone's safe and they're incredible, incredible people. And so they were interviewing this guy, asking him why he does what he does. Why do you take groups of people to the top of Everest over and over again, day in, day out? And the man said, well, sometimes it just feels so good to do something for someone else that they can't do on their own. And the man said, yeah, well, I, I mean, I get that, but 
but why? Like you're putting your life in danger. Every time that you do this, you're, you're risking your life to help other people get to the top of the mountain to see what it looks like from the top of the mountain. Why would you do this? It just kind of seems silly that you would risk your life like this. And he couldn't even finish the question before this man looked back at him at the interviewer and he didn't even skip a beat and said to him, the fact that you're asking me that question would tell me that you've never been to the top of the mountain. Now, for some of us in our life, we have to begin to recognize that there are some people who have never experienced the kingdom of God. They have, they have no idea what the love of God feels like. They have no idea what it's like to have generosity from someone, not because they've earned it, but simply because someone wanted to give it. They have no idea what grace and mercy feels like. And our job as Christians, and it should fuel us, it should drive us as disciples to live this way, to do good deeds, not for our own good, not for our own benefit, not for applause, but for the glory of God. Because we felt it. We've experienced the kingdom, but many have not. And I wanna live my life in such a way that when people come in contact with me, they come in contact with the kingdom of God. What would happen if we had a whole church of disciples who are learning under Jesus how to live their life under the rule and reign of God? And being a disciple, it's about, it's about who we are. It's, a, it's about how we live. It's about who we're with, but it's also about what we do. For some of us, it's, it's not enough for us to say we're disciples. We have to begin to live like disciples and serve like disciples and love like disciples. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace because too often, God, I'm the first one to admit I don't live like this. But God, I'm also the first to admit that I want to. I wanna live my life in such a way that people could come in contact with the kingdom of God simply by coming in contact with me. Help us to love people well, God. Help us to see the places within our culture where there is decay and help us to be preservation agents. Help us be people who live with intention, God. Help us be people who recognize the kind of influence that we have and help us be people who reveal what God is doing at work in the world. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for recognizing us as ordinary people but using us to do extraordinary things. It's in your name we pray, amen.